This is the 191st QuackCast. This is brought to you by Pussware LLC. And you can find all my growing multimedia empire of books and blogs and podcasts over at edgydoc.com. And Puss Whisperer 1 and 2, wonderful books for the puss lovers in your life, available on Amazon. I mean, if you can't pimp yourself, who can you pimp? It's called Vaginal Seating. Ew, that's nuts. Hmm, maybe it's interesting. Sometimes a headline will cause me to run through a series of reactions in rapid sequence. For example, mothers facing C-sections look at vaginal seeding to boost their baby's health. Quote, Early studies show that swabbing a mother's vagina and transferring it to her baby's mouth, eyes, and skin may stimulate the microbiome development similarly to babies born naturally and protect it from health issues later in life. I mean... Ick, the eyes? But take a step back. Not really. I tend to think of people like Pigpen in Charlie Brown, shedding skin and bacteria into the environment. If we were really to think about each other's microbiome, we might not have intimate contact with our significant other, or any other animal. I always point out, when someone lets their dog lick them, that they, the dog, probably just licked its rear a.k.a. dog-ass seating. But no, a dog's mouth is not cleaner than the human's unless your dog brushes and flosses with greater frequency than you. What is birth but exposing the mouth, skin, and eyes of the baby to mom's vaginal flora? So the ick factor is not really reasonable upon reflection, although anything that involves the eyes still gives me the willies. The whole question of the microbiome and its relationship to health and disease is a fascinating topic, but its application is closer to trying to construct a mnemonic memory circuit using stone knives and bearskins. That's a Star Trek reference, just in case you're interested. For the newborn, acquiring a microbiome is a complex and dynamic process with bacteria coming from exposure at birth, then from breastfeeding, then food, and finally becoming stable at about age three. A C-section does result in a different microbiome in the baby and is associated, with the usual association is not causation caveat, with a variety of diseases later in life. But the microbiome difference between normal and C-section babies is gone in a year. I have to admit I have always been enamored of the hygiene hypothesis and I find such speculation interesting if not ready for prime time. Certainly, I would never write a microbiome diet book. Others have. There, but for the grace of ethics, go I. Of course, that is presuming that mom's microbiome, with all the issues related to what constitutes a correct microbiome, is in fact the correct one for the child. What is a normal microbiome and on what part of the body? Does diet and hygiene lead to an altered microbiome? Interesting studies suggest that people with no contact with the modern world have more complex microbiomes. Quote, we characterize the fecal, oral, and skin bacterial microbiome and resistome of members of the isolated Yanomami Amerindian village with no documented previous contact with Western people. These Yanomami harbor a microbiome with the highest diversity of bacteria and genetic functions ever reported in a human group. And depressingly, quote, despite their isolation, 
presumably for greater than 11,000 years since their ancestors arrived in South America, and no known exposure to antibiotics, they harbor bacteria that carry functional antibiotic resistance genes. But Yanomami evolution has been on a separate tract than the West, so one could expect a different microbiome. So a different microbiome may not be a better microbiome. I wonder, as we are evolving towards the mass of cranium so popular in science fiction, if we will become dependent upon C-sections, we must if our children will be born with the same proportionately larger skulls. Or will there be other mutations that will make conception and birth of massive-headed babies possible? Now there is a mental picture I do not need. In my experience, speculation is fun. And it is interesting to speculate on how diet in the past and present has altered our microbiome. My favorite example is dental cavities. Cavities started showing up in humans about 15,000 years ago, although evidently Neanderthals were not good at flossing either. The theory is that farming life led to an increase in carbohydrate intake, which led to an increase in oral streptococcus mutans, the leading bacteria for causing human cavities. The issue of the microbiome and weight gain and loss is also interesting. Low levels of antibiotics in animal feed promotes growth, probably in part by altering the animal gut flora to a fat-promoting microbiome. How much the human microbiome is involved with regulation of weight is uncertain, but most of the information suggests it plays a part. I especially like the case of the patient with Clostridium difficile diarrhea who had a stool transplant for cure from an obese donor and proceeded to gain 40 pounds. So a bit more plausible than taking on the characteristics of the person who donated your heart, but I would never get a hand transplant from a murderer. That would be asking for trouble. The data on antibiotic use and obesity in children is variable, but some antibiotic regimens are more likely to result in weight gain, probably by altering the microbiome. But then human genetics may determine the microbiome rather than the other way around. So maybe the host determines whether or not there is an obesity-promoting microbiome. The assumption of these experiments is that altering a microbiome is only beneficial, but microbiomes do have the potential for harm. One grumpy doc notes that the child could be at risk for acquiring sexually transmitted or other diseases from vaginal transfer, but would that not be the case for regular births as well? That's why we do prenatal screening, so I would not fret overly much about that. There are a number of infections spread by the fecal-oral route, and there are bacteria, such as Bacteroides fragilis among others, that might promote bowel and other GI cancers. People seem to assume that there is a microbiome, perhaps originally from Eden, that has not known sin and search for it. I suspect that the idea that no good deed goes unpunished will apply here as well, and that a microbiome that has benefits in one area will have downsides in another. And some take it to extremes. I saw a case of a do-it-yourself microbiome transplant. With an uncertain diagnosis of his gastrointestinal problems, can't quite tell if it's irritable bowel or inflammatory bowel disease, one person tried, in the most half-assed way imaginable, to eradicate his own microbiome and substitute another. That's right up there with do-it-yourself surgery. So vaginal transfer? It's interesting and perhaps plausible idea, but far from being ready for prime time. 
but I would choose a microbiome from a thin person with no infections or family history of cancer for my transfer. And if you give your child your microbiome, you're banned from life from saying that vaccines are too many too soon. But our understanding of the complexity of the interactions of the microbiome and the human genome are in its infancy. The wise person leaves well enough alone. And that ends the 191st QuackCast. Thanks for listening. Go to edgydoc.com for my growing multimedia empire. Thanks a lot.